Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Today, we are discussing the September issue, uh, a little bit late, but uh, I have with me uh, the section editor, uh, Professor Ben Stenson from The Simpson in uh, Edinburgh. Do you want to say hello, Ben? Morning, everybody. And I guess we should just uh, dive straight in. Um, the September issue is certainly for me. There's a lot of focus on uh, on apoxic ischemic encephalopathy and specifically therapeutic creep. A couple of uh, articles from the neonatal uh, national neonatal research database, Ben, that uh, sort of pricked your interest. Yes, they're um, they're looking at the issue of mild encephalopathy. And this is something that's increasingly concerning to us as neonatologists, because historically it's something that wasn't considered to be associated with adverse outcome. But of course, in more recent years, there's been a growing evidence base that if you take the infants characterized with mild encephalopathy and look at studies of their outcomes that have followed them for longer and looked in more detail, there's an appreciable incidence of MRI abnormalities and of neurodevelopmental disability, cognitive impairment and behavioural difficulties. Yet there are a group of babies who weren't included, at least not deliberately, in the randomised controlled trials. So the two papers we've got in the journal are looking at issues over time in relation to mild HIE. And one of them is concentrating on children who were treated for HIE. And over time, that shows increasing numbers of children with mild HIE being included in treatment. The other study looks at the incidence of different grades of HIE diagnosed in the UK over time. And that's showing that we're not diagnosing more kids with mild, moderate or severe HIE than before. We're just treating a higher proportion of the mild infants. So in phantoms, I, I borrowed the term therapeutic creep, which is often observed. And I was trying to work out whether or not there was also diagnostic, in other words, our enthusiasm for treatment causing us to diagnose more kids and therefore treat more kids. But it seemed more to be treating a higher proportion of the children that we've already diagnosed. Absolutely. And um, there's a... There are, I suppose, to say to everybody who's listening, there is a lot of other very interesting uh, HIE work in that uh, in, in the journal, including prediction for two-year outcomes uh, and um, use of video for HIE, sorry, clinical uh, encephalopathy diagnosis. Uh, but there's something that I think people will find most interesting is the is the viewpoint by. Uh, Professor Alistair uh, Gunn and Muhammad Ali Tajin um, about the, I guess, the overall feeling of what the, if the story fits, then perhaps the, the therapeutic hypothermia is the right thing to do. And per, maybe perhaps that's where the creep's coming from. But because um, in my, certainly in my experience, when you're trying to diagnose a baby with neonatal encephalopathy, there's often very large chunks of the 
diagnostic criteria are missing or you're coming at the, the baby after a period of time. But that's a very interesting viewpoint is that if the story fits, please cool. Um, does that conflict with the creep or does that really reinforce that it's the creep in some circumstances is the right thing to do? I think they're saying out loud in the journal what large numbers of clinicians are thinking. And um, it is an, a really difficult dilemma because as soon as therapeutic hypothermia was demonstrated to be efficacious, it seemed like a, a gift that we had to make sure that we didn't deny any babies. And yet the, the criteria for enrollment in the trials weren't designed to find all the kids who would benefit. They were designed to find kids with a high risk of adverse outcome and a high likelihood of benefit, and therefore to be capable of demonstrating whether the treatment was efficacious. But it means that there's a whole bunch of people potentially who might benefit for whom the treatment hasn't been evaluated. And the trouble is then it's a much harder treatment to evaluate because the number needed to treat is high and so on. And also there's a creeping loss of equipoise that makes it difficult for clinicians to randomize babies and for families to make choices between treatment and randomization. So it, it's a really difficult thing for us to get out of, but the, the population uh, are increasingly being treated. And I guess it's only going to be big data that enables us to start looking at the balance of risks and benefits. And I, I suppose it's the, um, the large databases like the, the neonatal, uh, National Neonatal Research Database that um, can really provide some of those answers. We hope so, um, because in, 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 as in many other countries now, detailed diagnostic and treatment information is being entered into a system about every single baby and every single neonatal unit. And ultimately, the evidence base that that gives us to interrogate will, will be large. Uh, so um, moving on to, I suppose, an area that perhaps has suffered some, for some, some creep in the past is uh, surfactant administration, especially, I think you've described it very well, in thin catheter administration, it overcomes whether it's MIST or LISA or, or other, other techniques. But this is a network meta-analysis uh, by uh, Bellows and, and, and colleagues over a decent number of, of RCTs showing quite good benefit. Um, network meta-analysis, good idea. Well, there's a kind of words. I'm afraid it, I'm, I'm not an expert on the subject of meta-analysis and network meta-analysis, but like all meta-analyses, um, the output is dependent on the quality of the input. Mm. And I think sometimes it's used in areas where the cumulative evidence isn't large enough. And it's also made a little more challenging when you mix RCTs and observational studies. But um, this... Um, this network meta-analysis is reflecting the results of quite a lot of data showing that there's a definite strong place for thin catheter administration of surfactant, and that um, for many infants, this avoidance of um, ventilation through an endotracheal tube does seem to enable them to have uh, lower risks of some adverse outcome. Not surprisingly, as it's a network meta-analysis, we've had some correspondence into the journal saying that um, it's not quite clear that it's superior to this or that and that more data will be needed. But um, 
think everyone's finding a place for in catheter administration of surfactant in their practice now. I, I think so, and I, I, it's important to stress that this uh, meta-analysis compared surfactant administration across a broad range, so thin catheters, laryngeal mask, nebulization, pharyngeal installation, intubation, um, surfactant administration followed by immediate extubation, insure, and no surfactant administration. So it was a, a broad sweep of of, of comparisons, um, and I agree. I, I think for implementation of thin catheter um administration of surfactant is um is is the key and having um good data like this is certainly backs up those who are now embarking upon it because um i suppose not everybody around the world is able to um uh, attempt this just yet well for us the thing that held us back a little was the expertise required to be sure that the thin catheter was going to go into the right place and the um, the dilemma that that meant that members of the team who really need to grow their experience in in getting things into the trachea were being potentially excluded from a large proportion of the opportunities to do so. But we're finding that a bit easier with better video laryngoscopes. Yeah, that's. I think that's probably what I was thinking when you were saying that it's it, it's a need to visualize the um the the airway in a in the best possible way. So um, video laryngoscope seems to me certainly the the best way. But it's important to stress that this um, meta analysis didn't perhaps in, include that. It's really talking about our own experience. Um, but in in saying that, uh, you definitely are something a, a lovely uh, analysis that's worthwhile in helping people think about how to how, how to approach this uh, topic. Um, now on to the thorny issue of um, costs and economics. And uh, uh, again, another paper by Chris Gale and colleagues, this time written by Philippa Rees, looking at um, the, the costs of uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome in England. Quite surprising numbers, um, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, and uh, perhaps the first step in trying to reduce the costs is, is finding out what they are in the first instance. Yes, this uh, this article raised my interest as a neonatologist who works in Edinburgh, which 30 years ago was um, widely seen as the capital of Europe for drug-related problems. We've observed quite a lot of evolution in neonatal abstinence syndrome over the years. So I was interested in this article showing that admissions were increasing in England during more recent years, and that um, treatment and prolonged hospitalization is quite prevalent. This is an area really in need of further research and quality improvement. I think there's quite a lot of people now more anxious than before about the potential harmful effects of pharmacological treatment and the capacity to manage a lot of babies without um, pharmacological treatment with better uh, supportive care. And I think that, that reflects our experience in Edinburgh. So um, it's great that we've got this data now, which we can look nationally at how we're changing the landscape over time as, um, as practice changes. Absolutely, and certainly um, with the, the number of uh, publications and uh, uh, interest in the uh, abstinence problem in the United States, it certainly would be interesting to see how those numbers compare across health services and, and how they're provided. 
the the, the last two uh, phantoms uh, papers that you've highlighted are related to uh, neonatal resuscitation, um, and the, the one that um, I find most innovative and from a technological point of view quite interesting and in paralleling what's been happening in the adult world, as far as I can understand, is uh, sort of automated uh, chest compressions. Um, quite an interesting study by Dr. Bruckner uh, and his colleagues um, in, in a piglet model. Yes, um, we've had quite a lot of research in fetal and neonatal in recent years, looking in detail about uh, various aspects of neonatal resuscitation. And this is another neat example of how knowledge can be moved forward. So these, this team um, wanted to look in more detail about the things that determine the efficacy of CPR and neonatal recommendations for how CPR should be administered are um, not very strongly evidenced um, and to a certain extent based on extrapolation from other groups and data. The interesting thing about this study is that they developed an automated device which had a, a controllable piston to deliver the CPR so that they could adjust various aspects of the way CPR is delivered and measure their efficacy. And in this study, they're interested in the effect of compression depth on the hemodynamics and I guess we shouldn't be surprised that compression depth is important and that uh, it made a difference to the carotid blood flow and the systolic blood pressure that were delivered during CPR. Um, but it reinforces the doing CPR right and of paying attention to CPR quality whilst you're resuscitating uh, babies. I guess it's a, it's a, uh, in in many ways, it's a, it's a cognitive. It takes away some of the cognitive load of having to try and remember what you're you're doing if you have a, uh, some type of automation that's you know been tested and well controlled. And these are very important to to add into the you know the um, resuscitation sphere in um, in 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 managing a lot of the unknowns in in neonatal resuscitation. Yes, um, I mean I think it's a long way away from imagining that automated devices will actually be used clinically because the number of newborns who genuinely require um, CPR and the duration for which it's required are so short that practically speaking, it's difficult to imagine that happening. It's more to me interesting that they've got a device that enables them more meticulously to study the process. Absolutely. And, uh, from actually from the same group, they have done a, a, a systematic review and meta-analysis on face mask versus nasal prongs or nasopharyngeal tube for neonatal resus in the delivery room. I find this interesting, but more I find that your your comment at the end about the CORSAD trial uh, quite a, a interesting because this this study looks at what is concurrently available. But interesting that there are five RCTs and a reasonable number of infants to, to compare. Yes, this is a subject that's interested me for many years because um, mask ventilation is quite a difficult skill and um, it's even more difficult in small preterm babies. So it's not rare to attend a, an initial stabilisation that isn't going well that is improved by um, input that helps with mask ventilation techniques. So 
It's always been an interest whether there are other ways of providing positive pressure ventilation that are less technique dependent. And um, putting the IPPV through a nasal interface with a closed mouth gets rid of some of, potentially gets rid of some of the uh, technical difficulties um, if it's easier. So I think lots of people have been interested in this, but we've had only modest sized studies. And um, I guess one of the challenges with all of these studies is that people, it, you can't blind them. The people doing them, uh, it's very difficult to get away from from a degree of bias towards the new thing of interest. And so you need quite a big signal to convince you. And now here we've got five RCTs, 873 babies, and um, there isn't a significant difference, statistically significant difference in the primary outcome. The confidence intervals are quite wide, so um, determining this reliable will, will need a lot more data. And um, the difference in rates of intubation in the delivery room and the proportions of infants needing chest compressions numerically, not statistically significantly, but numerically are in favor of the nasal device, um, which um, suggests that there's value in more work to measure that more precisely. And when I said, interesting to see how the meta-analysis would change after inclusion from the CORSAD trial, the CORSAD trial is another trial of a nasal device versus mask ventilation that hadn't been published at the time of submission of this meta-analysis. And it adds a few hundred more inputs to the data set. And in the CORSAP trial, there were also advantages uh, to using the nasal approach. So I think there's still more work to do. This is going to gain more traction. Absolutely. And just to, to, to fill people in, because I had to, to double check whether it was, it was published, but it was published in, in June 2021 in JAMA PEDS um, and compares a low imposed work of breathing interface via bionasal prongs. Um, I think it's been developed, developed in Sweden by um, Snorri Donaldson. Um, and you can see the I believe it's called RPAP device. Um, of course, other That's correct. other 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 nasal binasal prong devices are available to to quote uh, the BBC. Um, but this this is we'll put the uh, JAMA Pete article link in the podcast notes. And there was an extra two hundred and fifty patients um, that could be added to that meta analysis. I, I suspect, and then and as you said, uh, the new respiratory device via binasal prongs reduced. Uh, was statistically significant in reducing uh, uh, delivery room uh, intubation and other things. So uh, absolutely a very um, a fertile field. Um, that's September, uh, Ben, and um, that's a, a nice wrap up of what's happening in terms of hypothermia and uh, the d delivery room. Um, as always, everyone, you can engage with the podcast via the podcast link on the website. Um, you can uh, get it via your regular podcast provider, uh, Apple or Google or SoundCloud. Um, you can contact me uh, at Jonathan underscore Davis three or the journal at ADC underscore FN or Ben, who I believe is at Stenson Ben. And we'd love to hear everybody's comments. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. Do you want to say goodbye, Ben? 
Goodbye. Thank you, Jonathan.